This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas Shlomo Ben Chaim, whose yard site is today. May his soul be elevated in heaven. This week is Parsha's Korach, and like last week, we have another grave mutiny against Moshe and against the establishment. Korach, he's Moshe's and Aaron's first cousin. He launches a rebellion against the leadership of Moshe and Aaron. Unlike the episode of The Spies, this is more of a localized rebellion, a localized insurrection. It's Korach, it's his cohorts and co-conspirators, Dasan and Aviram, own Ben Pelas, 250 unnamed leaders, and they're questioning Moshe and Aaron and their elevated stature, and they're seeking priesthood for themselves. They're questioning Moshe's impartiality. You know, you're the king and your brother is the high priests. All the offices, all the honors go to you. They're disrespecting Moshe and Aaron. Why are you so special? You think you're better than us. Everyone is holy. Everyone heard God at Sinai. You took more greatness than you deserved. And specifically, Korach wants to be named the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, instead of, or perhaps in tandem with Aaron. So Moshe tries to quell the rebellion, and he proposes a standoff. Let's see who God really wants. Everyone bring an offering of incense, and let's see who God chooses. And this is, of course, a subtle hint, a subtle threat. Don't forget last set of people who brought incense in an improper fashion. That was, of course, the sons of Aaron, Nadav and Avihu. They brought incense and they died. Moshe is, in effect, saying, be careful what you wish for. If you choose to go after Aaron and you want something that really God has apportioned to Aaron, it can be deadly for you. And it doesn't end up well for Korach and his co-conspirators. Some of them are burned in a fire. Some of them are swallowed up in a miraculous sinkhole together with their possessions and their family. And when the people launch a complaint, a plague wipes out thousands of the people until Aaron intervenes and he stops the plague with incense. This time the incense is going to save the people and he stands between the living and the dead and he halts the angel of death in his tracks. Afterwards, the special role of the Levites and Aaron's individual supremacy as Kongadil is reaffirmed. Every tribe submits a staff with their name on it and they place it in the tabernacle and in the morning they bring it out and they look at the results and Aaron's staff has bloomed with flowers and almonds. He's the real deal. He was selected by God to be the Kongadil and that blossoming studded staff was preserved for posterity alongside the ark to remind everyone no one should question the legitimacy of the Levites, the tribe of the Levites, and specifically the family of the Kohanim stemming from Aaron. Now we find an interesting verse that relates to all people at all times. In chapter 17, after the beginning of this insurrection is quieted, we read 
how the fire pans that these 250 co-conspirators of Korach, they used to offer incense, and they died, they were collected, these fire pans were collected by Elazar, the son of Aaron, and they were hammered out into platings for the outer altar. And the verse tells us, this is chapter 17, verse 5, Zikaron of Israel, it's a remembrance, a reminder for the children of Israel that no foreign man, no alien man who was not from the tribe of Levi, who was not from the descendants of Aaron, they should not offer ketores. And you should not be like Korach and his rebellion, his uprising, like God spoke to Moshe. And the Talmud tells us that anyone who behaves in the way of Korach and his minions is violating a prohibition. The prohibition tells us, we're told in our parasha, that we must not behave like Korach and his co-conspirators. There is a prohibition to mimic the ways of Korach and his posse. As such, I thought it was important to study the story of Korach and his followers and to see exactly what they did, what they stand for, and what we must strive to avoid. And along the way, we're going to learn not only what to avoid, but what to do. Because our Parsha tells the story of a dispute. There is a disagreement here between Korach and his cousins, Moshe and Aaron. They're just not in agreement. They're not in sync. They have severe differences in outlook, in perspective, in viewpoint. And you know what? That's the human condition. We're all different. We all see the world differently. Our own individuality colors the way we see things. We each have a unique vantage point. We all process information differently. Hence, there are disagreements. If you take, you know, a pack of animals, they kind of all agree on everything. You take a group of humans, especially Jews, everyone has a different way of doing things, everyone has a different perspective, everyone has different ideas. We are different. And invariably, there's going to be differences, disagreements, debates, and that's okay. And we're going to learn that not only is that okay, is that tolerated, it's actually encouraged. It's actually beneficial, but you have to learn how to do it properly. In the story of Korach, we see a way to debate and to disagree and to dispute a way that leads to destruction to devastation, to total disintegration. And we're warned not to copy Korach because there is a very good chance that unless we learn this lesson, we are in fact going to mimic Korach. Thus, the Torah warns us, don't copy Korach. Now, I mentioned earlier that not only is debate and disagreement tolerated, it is encouraged, it's beneficial, and now I want to tell you why. Debate, 
disagreement, argumentation, they all have a special role to play in our own personal development. If you've ever had the great privilege of spending time in a yeshiva, you know that that's basically what you're doing. You're debating and arguing and trying to mentally and spiritually spar with your study partner all day. Yeshiva, you could say, is basically a debate club. It's what we're being trained to do. You study with your partner and you argue and you read the Talmud and he understands it one way and you understand it a different way and you just lock horns and duke it out. And then you read the Rashi and the Tosvos and they're arguing. And then you open up the commentaries and everyone's in, in, in debate and everyone seems to disagree. And that's encouraged. And there is no effort to create, you know, monochromatic uniformity. There is an emphasis to try to argue it out. And that applies across the board, in the Talmud, in your discussions, in the lecture. If you go to a Talmudic lecture in yeshiva, the lecturer is fair game. It's fair game! If they say something that you disagree with, you are not only entitled, you're encouraged to get up and scream at them and say, I, I think you're wrong and here's my proof. Debate is at the heart of the yeshiva experience. And that, of course, teaches us to try to think more clearly and to weed out mistakes and to see what are the assumptions and where are the weaknesses and are there any holes or gaps in the logic, in the thinking. And it's all, of course, in pursuit of truth. But I think that there's something actually very deep that's happening over here. All of us are different. We're different. Of course, our nation is different. Even within our nation, there are 12 tribes. There are 12 unique ways to connect to the Almighty. But every individual is completely unique. I know this is one of the ideas that we try to hammer home in the Parsha podcast. Our sages tell us that at Sinai, there were 600,000 different experiences. Every individual experienced the revelation in a way that was bespoke, that was tailored to who they are individually as a soul. Everyone has a different soul. Everyone got a different part of Adam's soul and therefore Adam's qualities, attributes, and responsibilities. And therefore the revelation that we have of Sinai is tailored to every individual. We each have our own way to experience the connection with the Almighty. Now, of course, as we always stress when we talk about these subjects, that's not to say that someone could opt out of the 613. No, the 613 is universal. Everyone's got to follow the same rules. But what about your role in Torah? We pray at the end of the Shemona Esrei, the Amidah prayer, give us our portion in Torah beyond what is universal, we are all unique. And we all had our own unique version of Sinai. And our mission today is to try to identify, isolate, discover that identity, discover that individuality, and find out what role I need to do specifically. 
argument. When two people harboring two different souls who have experienced two different revelations of Sinai, when they lock horns over Talmud, in effect, they're each going through a path of self-discovery to discover what makes them unique and what's their own individual angle to Torah. And therefore, the ideal world is not where everyone isn't just, you know, quiet, consensus, conformity. Everyone's just seeing it the same way. No, everyone's encouraged to find their own individuality, and that is aided by debate. Thus, debate and argument is really critical if you want to identify who you are, what your role is. Why were you put on this earth? What mission must you complete? What is your unique corner of Torah that's yours to discover and yours to develop? What was your Sinaitic revelation? And that's why I think, you know, one of the reasons why those who merited to spend time in yeshiva are so fortunate because it helps us not only develop our knowledge of Torah, sharpen our mind, hone our intellect, develop good habits and good friends, but it also helps us develop and sharpen and discover our own individuality. And that is done when we debate and we argue. And anyone who spent even a half hour in the yeshiva knows that we do not encourage docility. There is no lionization of passivity or meekness. That is not the Torah way. If you disagree, you raise your voice. You present your case. You lay out your argument. But you have to know how to do it. And Korach also had a disagreement with Moshe and Aaron. That's okay. But the mistake that he made and the mistake that we are encouraged to avoid, in fact, we are warned not to mimic, that is imperative. We have to know how to debate, how to disagree in a productive fashion. Now, it's important to remember that Korach was no lightweight. He was a wise man, according to our sages. He made a grievous blunder, and he suffered the consequences as a result. And by studying his story, we can organize for ourselves what are the principles, what are the guardrails, the scaffolds, what are the scaffolds of debate and disagreement, and how do we make sure that we are productive in our pursuit of our own individuality. Now, the mission of the book of Pirkei Avos, chapter 5, tells us that there are two kinds of debate. There is a debate, L'shem Shemaim, for the sake of heaven. And then there is a debate, Shalom L'shem Shemaim, not for the sake of heaven. And what's an example of a debate not for the sake of heaven? That is the debate, the argument, the disagreement of Korach and his cohorts. And what's an example of a debate, of an argument for the sake of heaven, a productive one? That is the debate of Hillel and Shammai. The arguments of Shammai and Hillel are the complete opposite of Korach and his minions. 
And thus, in every example of Korach's mistaken method of debate, Shammai and Hillel will show us the correct way to do it. So if you study the story of Korach, you find that his argument was not based on the merits. He's laying a claim. He's making an argument. He's presenting his case that he should be the Kohen Gadol and Moshe and Aaron bit off too much and they're not acting as per the express will of the Almighty. And he launches this insurrection with his co-conspirators and allegedly it's on the merits. He claims, well, Moshe and Aaron, you're no better. The whole nation is holy. But you took too much power for yourselves. Allegedly, it's based upon the merits. But when we examine the story in detail, we find that there were other things that were motivating his behavior. Why did Korach contest Moshe and Aaron, and specifically Aaron's priesthood? What prompted this rebellion against Moshe and Aaron? So Rashi, in the first verse of our parasha, reveals to us that it had something to do with a conflict with a grievance that's not even mentioned in the scripture. Why did Korach see it proper to disagree with Moshe? He was envious about the appointment of his first cousin, Eli Tzafan ben Uziel, who was appointed to be the, the prince, the president of the family of Kehas. Now there's some family dynamics here it's important to know. Levi had a son named Kehas. Kehas had four sons. The oldest one was Amram, the father of Moshe and Aaron, and of course Miriam. The next one was Yitzhar, the father of Korach. The next one was Hevron. And the youngest son was Uziel, whose son was Elitzaphon. So we have four cousins involved in this bigger story. We have Moshe and Aaron, the sons of the eldest son of Kehas. We have Korach, the son of the second to oldest son of Kehas. And we have Elitzaphon, the son of Uziel, namely the son of the youngest son of Kehas. Now, because Moshe and Aaron came from the oldest of these uncles, they were the sons of Amram, it's okay that they take the two highest offices. After all, they are the oldest and the most senior of the cousins. One of them becomes the king and one of them becomes the high priest. That is tolerable. But there is one more remaining appointment, and that is to be the head of the family of Kahas. Shouldn't that go to the next cousin in line? Shouldn't that go to the next Cousin by order of seniority, and that would be Korach. Yet Moshe appointed the younger of the cousins, Elitzafan, to be the, the head, the, the prince, the president of the family of Kahas. And therefore that prompted a complete assault on the entirety of the rule of Moshe and Aaron. So it's interesting, you know, Korach was passed over for a promotion that he thought he rightfully deserved. 
And that triggered him, that prompted him to launch a total rebellion against Moshe and Aaron. But what ignited his displeasure was not Moshe and Aaron being king and high priest, that he tolerated. After all, they were the sons of Amram, the oldest son of Kehas. What prompted his displeasure was the other, younger cousin, Elitzafan's promotion to be the head of the family of Kehas. But the original, unrelated grievance is not even mentioned when he attacks Moshe and Aaron and he tells them, why are you better than us? So it's interesting here. If we study the grievance of Korach, there's a critical point here. Although Korach and his rebellion is directed at Aaron and Moshe and claiming that they are Ill- illegitimate, it was rooted in something else entirely. His real claim, his real problem, his real beef with Moshe and Aaron had nothing to do with Moshe and Aaron themselves and their appointments. It had to do with the other cousin, Elie's cell phone. His argument was not on the merits. So we see some flaws here in Korach's argument in his position. He was not arguing on the merits of the debate. It was, at its core, it was rooted in envy for not getting the promotion he thought he rightfully deserved. But there's more. In verse 7 of chapter 16, Rashi tells us another reason why Korach undertook this doomed mission, insurrection against Moshe and Aaron. Rashi asks the question, he says, wait a minute, Korach was a pikeach. He was a wise person. He was clever. He was insightful. Why did he do something so foolish? Why is he arguing with Moshe and Aaron? Isn't that a foolish thing to do? So if Korach was a fool, it would make sense. Fools do foolish things. But Korach was not a fool. He was wise. So why is the wise person doing such a foolish thing? That is Rashi's question. And his answer is amazing. His answer is that his eyes, Korach's eyes, led him astray. Now, what does that mean? His eyes, his vision was prophetic. And he was able to see a long line of great men descending from him. He had clairvoyance to be able to see the future like a prophet, and the future was really bright in Korach land. One of Korach's descendants is none other than the prophet Samuel. The great prophet Samuel is a descendant of Korach. And Samuel on some level, on some dimension, is equal to Moshe and Aaron. So if my descendant is Samuel, and Samuel is equal to Moshe and Aaron, certainly I will triumph against Moshe and Aaron. And he also saw prophetically that he's going to have legions 
of Levite descendants that are all going to prophesy with the Holy Spirit, with Ruach HaKodesh. His descendants are going to comprise 24 shifts of prophesying Levites. And thus, Korach had a lot of confidence to know that he is going to prevail. He's going to triumph. After all, look at this very bright future that I have in store. Moreover, he heard Moshe. Moshe said, when this incense standoff was happening, Moshe foretold that only one person was going to survive. So Korah said, well, one person is going to survive. Obviously, it's going to be me. After all, look at all these amazing descendants that I have in store. So ironically, his clairvoyance led him astray. Had Korach not had these visions, these prophetic visions of his descendants in great positions of distinction, he wouldn't have launched his insurrection. But I think this is another example of Korach engaging in this conflict, not based upon the merits on the ground as they are today. He had this false confidence based upon this, this vision for the future. He, he misread the tea leaves. And that caused the events that followed. Now Rashi tells us that he had a whole reasoning and ideology behind his argument, we don't need leaders, we're like a garment made entirely of trellis, we don't need the trellis strings, we're like a house full of Torah scrolls, we don't need the mezuzah on the door. But at its core, Rashi reveals that Korach's position was not based on the merits. It was envy, over the appointment of Elitzaphon. It was a misinterpretation of the prophecy that gave him the false confidence that he would triumph, but it was not an argument based upon the merits. That is a Korachian kind of debate. It's not productive. It's not for the sake of heaven, and it will not yield positive results. Now, by contrast, we have Hillel and Shammai. Hillel and Shammai and the schools, the academies that they spawned, they debated with ferocity and even virulence and intensity never since seen. The Talmud tells us in the book of Erevin, page 13b, that the debates were long, intense, and protracted. And for three years, the academies of Shammai and Hillel were arguing over the halacha. What is the correct halacha? Is it like the academy of Shammai or is it like the academy of Hillel? And for three years, there was an intense debate that did not cease. And the only way that debate was quieted The only way that it was resolved was by a prophetic voice booming from heaven, announcing to all, Elu Elu Divri Elo Kim Chaim, these and these are the words of a living God. They're both right. They're both Torah. The Halacha, Kibes Hillel, and the Halacha follows the Academy of Hillel. And the Talmud asked the question, why does the Halacha follow the Academy of Hillel, both, both of them are the word of the living God. They both have an equal claim to truth. 
Why does the halacha follow the Academy of Hillel? So Tamar explains, because they were more bashful and they were more pleasant and they would teach the words of the Academy of Shammai first and they would include them in the debate and therefore the halacha was rendered to be like the Academy of Hillel. But in the future, we're told, the halacha will follow the Academy of Shammai. But this Talmud shows us that you can have debate for the sake of heaven, and it can be vigorous and intense. You can have three years protracted debate. And that's an example of debate done right. And the Talmud, in fact, brings another debate that lasted only two and a half years. It was a shorter debate. It was over and done with. It was fast. Two and a half years. They're arguing for years. The greatest minds ever assembled in debate going at it for years. And that is an example of a debate that's encouraged and that's necessary. But what is the nature of those arguments? It's about the halacha. Which position is correct on the merits? We have two groups of sages with nothing to personally gain by winning an argument. No one gets a higher position or accolades or plaudits. It's all about the halacha. Each side presenting their best arguments, debating, arguing on the merits of the subject. And this is an example of the debates of Hill and Shami, which are encouraged. And we see how it's, in fact, not, not personal. The Talmud tells us that even though they would debate and argue with intensity, for years there was still collegiality and friendship amongst them. And they would intermarry with each other. They loved each other. Done properly, debate is not personal. It should enhance the relationship, not weaken it. The Talmud tells us that when you study, you have to become so passionately engaged in your study that you could even look at your study partner who's disagreeing with you and say, I hate you. (laughs) That's okay. But when you're done, what's going to naturally result is that you will love each other even more than before. When there is a debate done for the sake of heaven, in the Hillel and Shammai version of it, it's on the merits, and it, in fact, will promote, will enhance the personal relationship between the two people. And we see Moshe in this example of Korach. Moshe is speaking softly to them, and he's trying to appease them, and he's trying to remind them of their unique distinction. God elevated you. You're a Levite after all. You're elevated above the rest of the populace. And he tries to reconcile again and again. Moshe is maintaining a close personal relationship all the way through. He's not resorting to any ad hominem attacks. And by contrast, 
Korach and his bunch, they're attacking Moshe personally. Dathan and Abiram, when Moshe tries to reconcile with them, they attack Moshe personally. What is the marker, the hallmark of a productive debate that helps a person discover who they are and helps them identify their unique soul and discover and retrace their own Sinaitic experience? The marker of such a debate is that it promotes love and harmony and peace and closeness once the debate is over. And then we see another aspect of how to do this properly. There's an amazing Rashi. And if you read it actually quite critically, you'll notice that it's, it seems to be on the face quite troubling. This is in verse 12. Moshe calls the son of Abiram, Dathan Abiram, the son of Eliav, and they refuse to go meet Moshe. And Rashi tells us, from Moshe's behavior we see, that we are not allowed to cling to dispute. Why? Because Moshe, he was actively pursuing peace and reconciliation, and he wanted to make them whole with words of peace. If you read this Rashi critically, you'll notice an apparent inconsistency. Rashi starts off by saying that from Moshe's behavior, we see that you cannot cling to strife, to dispute. And then he proves it by saying that Moshe was actively pursuing them to achieve peace. So which is it? From the first words of Rashi, it seems that so long as you don't actively cling to dispute, you're okay. From the latter part of Rashi, it seems that you have to actually pursue actively, you have to pursue reconciliation. Evidently, Rashi is telling us that the requirement to quell and quiet dispute requires us to actively seek reconciliation. In the event that an argument is threatening to spiral out of control, Moshe shows us that even when you're right, you must pursue reconciliation. If you don't, you are clinging to dispute. What Rashi is telling us here is two important points. It's okay, it's encouraged, to have an opinion. It's also okay to argue your opinion But to cling to the dispute, that is where there's the violation. And what does it mean to not cling to a dispute? It means to actively pursue peace. If you do nothing, that is equivalent to clinging to dispute. We have to actively seek rapprochement. Argumentation is good. Even if it's vigorous and intense and protracted, it will help you discover what makes you special. It will help you reveal your own individuality. 
It will show you what you specifically heard at Sinai. But you cannot do it the way Korach did it. The motivation has to be for truth. You have to argue on the merits. Beshamai and Basila were arguing what the halacha is. They were searching for the truth. And they were arguing on the merits. And it was not, as in the case of Korach, in pursuit of personal aggrandizement. It wasn't like Korach, who perhaps believed or argued that he was doing it for the greater good. But truthfully, he was just deluding himself. He wasn't self-aware to know that it was really rooted in envy. And we see here, looking at outsiders, we see that Korach was really upset about the appointment of Eli Tzafon for one role. And that was the root of his complaint, even though he presented his complaint on a different subject. We have to argue on the merits. And it cannot be ad hominem arguing. A productive kind of debate will improve your relationship. It won't harm it. And after the debate is over, there must be resolution. We have to take steps to create closure and to let it go, to move forward and to resume peace and harmony and to restore harmony. And there's a grave danger when there's an argument and there's no meeting of the minds and it eventually could lead towards strife and discord and disunity and schisms and breaking apart and breaking apart of families, of marriages, of relationships, of partnerships, even of a social fabric of a nation. There could be factionalism, division, discord. It's really awful. And of course, you know, without making any commentary on society, we're not a nation, not as a Jewish nation, not as Americans, even though, of course, we know that there are many, many, a sizable international audience. And in fact, I'm in Canada right now, so I'm not even in the country because Canada has yet to be annexed, as you know. But we see people disagree about things. And you could have two two sides in an argument. And they're not doing it properly. And it leads them to hate the other side. And sometimes they're not even arguing on the merits of the argument. And once the argument is over, there's no effort to create unity, to restore unity, to restore harmony. I think our parsha is really important. And we learn the importance, the supreme paramount importance of not just being someone who is, you know, meek, docile, passive, just accepting things, to be totally apathetic to the world and not care about it. That's not our way. And in fact, we believe that it's, it should be encouraged. 
we have to discover our own little corner of Sinai greatness, of Sinai specialness. And that's done. That's brought out. Our individuality is brought out when we clash with other people. But it has to be done with respect. Like Beisham and Basil, they present the other side's arguments first. It has to be done in a way that fosters love. It has to be on the merits. We have to think about our arguments. Are we sure that there's not something else here motivating? That we're not just jumping on a bandwagon? That we're not really upset about something else that's being manifested in this debate? Argue on the merits. Argue in a productive way, in a collegial way, in a respectful way. And once the argument is over, make efforts at reconciliation. That's the format that we find out in our parsha, And that is a way that we can productively debate our way back to Sinai. Okay, let's get to this week's exquisite insight. Are you ready? Let us go. And this insight comes courtesy of the Talmud. One of those sharp, incisive Talmudic statements. This is in the book of Sota, page 13b. It's talking about Moshe and the words that he said to Korach. Berav biser, berav bisruhu. What does that mean? When Moshe was trying to quiet Korach, he tells them, this is in verse 3 of chapter 16, take the fire, bring the incense, we'll have the show done tomorrow. And the verse ends, Rav Lachem B'nai Levi. You have a lot. You're the sons of Levi. You're already special. Why are you seeking more? He's trying to ostensibly comfort them or at least remind them that they are special. Don't ask for the high priesthood. That is not for you. But the word that he uses is Rav. You have a lot. Says the Talmud. When Moshe wanted to go in the land of Israel, God said to him, Rav Lecha, you have a lot. The exact same words that he used, or the same formulation that he used to tell Korach, you're not going to get what you want. God told him, you are not going to get what you want. And Rashi explains, this shows us that God is so severe in his judgment of the righteous and he was punished, so to speak, for the way he presented the argument to Korach. There's a certain degree of what we would call poetic justice. In the same words that he used to reject Korach's claim, when they wanted something more than they're entitled to, and he said, no, Rav Lachem, those same words boomeranged back at him when he was rebuffed in his request for more than he was due. He is not allowed to go to the land of Israel. Rav Lecha. This is amazingly severe criticism of Moshe. I think it does raise the question. Well, first of all, I would say that this is an exquisite insight because the Talmud is showing us such a deep reading of what's ostensibly two unrelated stories, one in the book of Numbers, one in the book of Deuteronomy, 
Both of them, at its core, are people seeking something that God said no. Korah wants the priesthood or the high priesthood, and God says no. Moshe wants to go to the land of Israel, and God says no. And the words that Moshe uses to rebuff Korah, God uses to rebuff Moshe. Rav Lachem Levi, you have a lot. Moshe, Rav Lacha, you have a lot. Now, of course, another angle of this is to pose the question, well, what did Moshe do wrong? What should he have done instead? He was obviously correct on the merits of the argument. But maybe we can suggest that Moshe focused on the wrong point. Instead of trying to comfort Korah by saying, you have enough, focus on what you have, not what you don't have. Perhaps the criticism on Moshe is that he should have told them the fact that you don't have the high priesthood is actually to your benefit. He should not have told him, well, you have a lot, don't ask for more. What he should have perhaps said is you have a lot. And this is actually to your benefit because when God withholds something from for you, it's never to your detriment. And maybe that's the criticism on Moshe. And that's why there's this very subtle hint of the same words boomeranging back at him. Regardless, I think it qualifies as an exquisite insight. If you agree or you disagree, send me an email, rabbalobajima.com. And until next week, have an incredible, wonderful, splendid, terrific, uplifting, empowering week upcoming and a sensational, terrific, relaxing, emotionally, spiritually gratifying Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, we'll talk again next week. The email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. And if you have yet to email me, what are you waiting for? I'm hitting refresh on my inbox. Send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com.